Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on the podcast today is fighting human trafficking in the digital age. My guest in studio is Emily Kennedy, and Emily is the president and co-founder of Marinus Analytics. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, it's great to have you here in studio. Yes. Well, I want to start out before diving into our topic today, start out talking about way, way back in the day to when we first met, um, when you were a teenager, how did this whole idea of human trafficking even get on your radar? That's a great question. Um, so these days, human trafficking is kind of the crime du jour. It's um, something that everybody's talking about. But back when I first learned about it as a 16-year-old, it was not that way. Hmm. Um, and so I learned about it through a couple of different ways. One was that I was traveling through Eastern Europe at the age of 16. And um, I grew up very naive, you know, kind of in a bubble, you know, safe bubble. And um, we were traveling through some pretty rural areas, driving um, down from Hungary through Serbia and Macedonia, Albania, around there. And uh, I saw some kids on the street who were begging, trying to wash our car windows, which is fairly common, but they just had this air of desperation about them. They like kind of swarmed our car and mm. it was like, we didn't know what was going on. And um, after we left that place, I asked my friend who was from Hungary, who was from that area, um, you know, what was going on there. And he said, well, those children are actually trafficked by the Russian mob to beg on the street. And they have to make a daily quota every day uh, from begging and washing windows. And if they don't make that quota, they'll be punished by their traffickers. Mm. Um, and that was my first like brush with human trafficking. Um, and when I got to the U.S., I learned that it was not at all simply an international problem. It was happening in the U.S. Um, and then one of my youth leaders at my church actually um, moved to, after he graduated college, moved to Svepak, Cambodia, to the red light district to mm. uh, rescue children out of the child sex tourism slave trade there. So just those were a couple things that really hit me at a, I would say, pretty tender young age. Mm -hmm. And um, and that just really was something that I carried with me throughout the years after that. Did that become a calling for you at that point, or was it later on in college? Um, that's a good question. Uh I don't know, probably around that time because it was just something that stuck in my heart. Like I just couldn't um, stop thinking about mm -hmm. it over the years. And so I tried to just educate myself. Um, I remember actually distinctly like walking out of church thinking like, I want to do something about that mm -hmm. as a teenager. But I had no really skills or no knowledge of what was actually needed to solve the problem. And so it wasn't until college that I started looking into the technology aspects of it and start to actually get a concrete idea of how one might actually mm -hmm. build a solution. So yeah, in the beginning, it was more of a, a desire and um, yeah, I think a calling in the sense that it really stuck with me. I just didn't really know how mm -hmm. I was going to go about that. Mm -hmm. So you went off to college and what was your major? I studied ethics, history, and public policy. I thought I was going to do pre-law, probably go to law school, mm -hmm. you know, go that whole route. So, so how did you end up working in the techno technology field? 
Yeah, which is funny. A lot of people think that I'm like a genius coder who's coding all of this. No, uh, I, I like to say that I get all of the geniuses together and then connect them with the people who need solutions. So mm-hmm. uh, for me, that was in, I think, either my junior or my senior year um, when I was looking to do my senior honors thesis. So for my major, I wanted to do a thesis to focus in on the problem of human trafficking uh, with resources and in a way that I hadn't had time to do before. And so I started looking into it, started observing how um, the internet had really changed the game when it came to human trafficking. And in the last 10 to 15 years at that time, Um, had really enabled traffickers to stay anonymous, to advertise more people uh, with a broader audience, make more money and all this, Mm -hmm. and started to learn how law enforcement was really behind the game on it because they didn't have tools to be able to make use of data. So I started um, working with some great researchers and programmers at the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute. Mm-hmm. And uh, was just, they were blowing my mind with <laughs> what is machine learning? What mm-hmm. is AI? And what tools can actually help us? Um, and so that was the time when I started just playing around with software that they've developed at the lab, testing things out and starting to see how can we basically take this huge amount of data, we're talking millions of ads, and turn it into actionable intelligence for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, when people hear the word, you know, the words artificial intelligence, a lot of times they just think about things they see in movies or maybe video game characters that you play against. How would you explain uh, to, to, you know, just a lay audience what artificial intelligence actually is? Sure. So uh, I'm definitely, you know, fan of those movies. I love, you know, AI, what I call AI horror movies. I don't know (laughs) if that's actually a genre, but uh, it's definitely fun. AI can encompass a really wide range of things, but essentially I think of it as um, kind of teaching robots brains to help humans. So uh, AI isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to have like a physical robot, but it's how do we automate a lot of the processes that humans have to do to process data. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's the idea of um, there's, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of ads that are selling sex online where these victims of sex trafficking are advertised. Um, And so how do we process through all of that data within seconds to pinpoint the needle in the haystack that law enforcement is looking for, which would be the victim or the perpetrator, uh, within seconds, as if a human could read through those millions of ads in seconds Mm -hmm. and find all of the relations that relate to their case. Mm -hmm. So um, by no means is it replacing the work that law enforcement does. Um, You know, AI is not advanced enough to uh, replace investigative processes that they do. But the goal is to really um, save time on those processes that involve processing a lot of data, reading mm-hmm. a lot of data, so that instead of reading through thousands of ads, a detective can instead spend more of their time actually investigating. Mm-hmm. So you started your company to help law enforcement, to help these organizations. Tell us about some of the groups that you've worked with. Yes, yeah, so uh, we spun out of Carnegie Mellon in 2014, and we currently work with local, state, and federal law enforcement um, across the U.S. Uh, we've worked in Canada for about three years now, and then we're recently working on our United Kingdom expansion as well. Hmm. Uh, so Traffic Jam is available there, and that's kind of the start of our European expansion. Oh, wow. Tell us a little bit about Traffic Jam. What is Traffic Jam? Sure. So Traffic Jam is a suite of AI tools that help law enforcement turn 
turn this huge amount of data into actionable mm-hmm. intelligence for sex trafficking investigations. So we say a suite of tools because it puts a bunch of different tools in their toolbox. Um, human trafficking investigations are complex investigations. So they need a lot of different uh, ways to go about it. But one, just one example is facial recognition. So we have a tool mm-hmm. in Traffic Jam called Face Search. Um, and detectives can upload a photo of a victim. This would be from social media, maybe a missing persons poster. We've actually had many success stories involving um, a detective seeing an online news article about a runaway, you know, 16-year-old who's believed to be exploited for sex online upload that image and within seconds find some potential matches um, and then further investigate to determine if those are true matches. And we've had many, many success stories come out of that. Um, I think it's important to note that not all ads contain a trafficking person. And that's why AI is so important because it Mm. really is the needle in the haystack. Um, And so we're enabling law enforcement to find those a lot more quickly. So we had a a fairly recent case that um, involved Ultimately, over time, it involved 21 victims Hmm. of a particularly violent trafficker. And the detective did great work. He was able to put together this case against this trafficker in three months. That would typically take about two years to put together using those tools, especially face search. Um, And so that's just powerful. I mean, the time time savings, the fact that timing is so crucial in Mm -hmm. finding these victims quickly. Um, So that's what we enable. Wow. Well, tell us one of those success stories where you can contact the way it used to be for them versus how it can be now with the help of artificial intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had uh, a, one recent success story. Uh, so before these tools were available, I actually had an FBI analyst tell me probably about one or two years two years ago, that she, in order to try to find missing or runaway children who were sold online for sex, she would print out a photo of that victim, Mm -hmm. tape that photo to her computer screen, and then manually scroll through thousands, Hmm. uh, if she could, you know, if she had the time, hundreds or thousands of ads trying to hope that she would find that victim. And not only is that really, really just not likely to find someone. We also know that these groups move from city to city. So what are the odds that she's even looking in the right city? Um, And so that is how things had gone before. You know, that's really the best they could do is try to do this manually. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had a recent case that uh, where a detective was looking for specific victims. One in particular he was looking for this victim with a photo from when she was 15, but she was currently 17 years old. So the photo was two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to find successful matches of that victim. Mm. And what's interesting is that he, when he was looking at the, the kind of the results, he didn't recognize her originally in the results. Mm. And because her appearance had changed so much, makeup and mm-hmm. hair, and she just looked so different. And yet the facial recognition was able to see that it was a potential match. And he only realized that when he was searching through the phone numbers and he realized one of those phone numbers was linked to her real name. Hmm. And he realized that's when the light bulb went off and he realized, oh my gosh, this is the victim that I'm looking for. Um, And he was able to put together that case really quickly. So um, it's just really powerful what AI is able to do. It by no means, I think, People have this idea that you just push a button and then you get the answer and you just blame the AI for anything that it did wrong. And that's not just not 
where we're at. It's I see it really as a collaborative tool mm-hmm. where there's always human input pretty much at every step of the way. So by no means would a detective get a result and then just go blindly off of that result. They have mm-hmm. to verify it using other investigative techniques um, and they have to go through those checkpoints. Um, so, you know, having AI does not uh, offload our ethical obligations by mm-hmm. any means. And I think that's kind of how people tend to take it. Um, but I see it really just as a collaborative tool that can um, further the work that these detectives do. Wow. Um, what are some other tools that help law enforcement not only find people who have been or who are being trafficked, but um, who potentially um, are being trafficked, but they're just not sure, like runaways, for example? Can they track where people are and what they're doing? Mm. Is there anything that tips them off? <sighs> That's an interesting question. So for us, we're focused on the sex exploitation stuff uh, specifically. So in our cases, it would just be, you know, if the detective has a photo of the runaway, he thinks they might be exploited, or Mm -hmm. maybe he has like an old cell phone number. Um, He can use those as starting points to search for victims. Um, So I think that's the, one of the reasons that runaway cases um, can be a really good fit for these tools because they typically are like the detective is starting with a tip um, mm-hmm. or some sort of you know lead on this person because maybe they have a family who's looking for them, um, maybe they have you know social workers who've given tips. Um, but foster children and runaways are, and I, I like to bring this up because um, people need to understand that those are the most vulnerable to mm-hmm. sexual exploitation. Um, people often think that it's someone getting kidnapped off the street, you know, or uh, and and I. Think think we see those stories of people saying, well, my child was almost trafficked, you know, and honestly, that's that's not typically the case. Um, it, it can happen every now and then, but, uh, you know, it's not typically the case that that someone is is kidnapped and then, mm-hmm. you know, has a family looking for them and they've been trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's, I think, important for people to understand. Well, today there are a lot of concerns about privacy issues on Facebook, on other social media, and traffickers use some of these social media platforms to uh, lure children in. Um, Have you encountered any pushback in terms of the the work that you're doing with AI because of privacy issues? Yeah, there's definitely pushback whenever people hear the word facial recognition, pretty much, (laughs) Um, even if people don't fully understand what we do. So yeah, I definitely like to clarify. Um, One thing to note is that the data that we look at is all publicly available. So this is totally visible to the public. We're not um, hacking into anything. We're not um, you know, taking private information. So um, that's one thing to note. Um, secondly, we're not a facial recognition company. We partnered with Amazon Web Services to deploy this. Um, and honestly, the cat's out of the bag on facial recognition. It exists. Um, and my, my personal opinion, as it has been with all technology, is as with any tool, you know, as with a car or an airplane or a pen, you know, it can be used for good, it can Mm -hmm. be used for bad, and you know, if we want to do something good with it, it's up to us to to do that and to to make it a force for good. Um, I always say, you know, AI AI for good because um, people will use these technology tools for bad, Um, but we strive to use it for, you know, the best application that I can think of. And then thirdly, it's very important that we vet our user community, that we make sure that the law enforcement that we give access to are trained in a victim-centered approach. They're trained to identify cues that uh, uncover trafficking victims as opposed to someone who's just working in at-will prostitution. Um, And so we, you know, 
do what we think is our part to include the training that's necessary to vet the users and make sure the right people are getting it into their hands. So what drives you to get up every day and keep fighting the good fight with this? Are there are there people who have inspired you over the years, mentors? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think just seeing the success definitely inspires, and um, we don't get to see that all the time. Um, sometimes due to, you know, um, law enforcement, privacy of their cases or whatever it may be, we don't always get to hear the successes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people think, people ask us, do you interact with victims? Do you see them? No, we pretty much never do um, because we see our goal as supporting law enforcement, as um, giving them tools and then, uh, you know, hopefully encouraging them to work with people who are trained in victim Mm -hmm. uh, services who are able to give them the appropriate things that they need. Um, as for mentors, I think my dad made a huge difference in my life. Um, just raising me to, I mean, giving me that Eastern Europe opportunity, raising me to be aware of like things going on in the world Mm -hmm. outside of my own little bubble. And, um, really, I think the way that he brought me up was the foundation for what I believe today and what I've said actually since we started this work, since I was working in my pajamas, you know, as a researcher that, you know, if I can do all of this work and all of this research and my team can do all of this work, if we enable the rescue of one person, it's absolutely worth it because that person has infinite value, you mm-hmm. know, um, and And so all of that work is worth it, you know, and you get into the business and there's all these other stressors and challenges and um, things that drive you crazy. But, you know, ultimately, that's why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. Have you encountered any challenges to your faith working in this industry? Um, That's a good question. Um, Maybe challenges in the sense that seeing all of this bad stuff all the time is, um, it can be really frustrating. And, you know, I think law enforcement deals with that mm-hmm. way more than we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't, don't see half of what they have to see up close and what they have to deal with. But um, yeah, it can be really frustrating when there's only so much that you can do. Um, and I don't know, I think for me, it's just been realizing like, all we can do is focus really hard on our niche, on our area of focus, stay focused, um, and and do the best that we can do, and then hopefully partner with other people who are doing great things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it can definitely be discouraging to like be immersed in this in this area. But at the same time, you know, since I came across it as a 16 year old, like I couldn't get it out of my mind anyway. So why not be, you know, doing something about it? And I think there's also the element of like, you kind of become numb to it over time, which Mm -hmm. I don't think is necessarily the best, you know, and, and there's part of me and I think a lot of people who are in um, like the law enforcement field feel this that you know, I don't want to sit here and cry about it. I want to go do something. I want to make a difference. So mm-hmm. um, that impact definitely, definitely drives us. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how people have infinite value, infinite worth. And if you could just help one person, it would all be worth it. How else do you incorporate your faith with the work that you do? Um, you know, I think it's pretty simple. Just um, honesty, integrity. Um I think something that I've always been really influenced by is um, so statistics are really hard to to come across uh, mm. that are good in in the human trafficking space and 
that was another thing that really motivated me to get into this work mm -hmm. is seeing how little academic research was done on it at the mm -hmm. time and um and and also seeing that because we talk about this issue so much just in you know the US and the media and politicians and everybody's talking about it um i think there's this motivation to like make the statistics as big as they can possibly be you know have the biggest numbers that we can possibly say and I, I think there is that danger, you know, whether it's for companies or even NGOs who have to show their impact to like say these big numbers. Um, but you know, a lot of times when you look at the data, there's just you know they're old statistics. In fact, they're if people want to look this up, highly recommend. Um, the Washington Post did a MythBuster hmm. kind of um, series of articles about some commonly held human trafficking statistics, um, and many of these studies that people are quoting all the time have even been said by their own uh the people who wrote those studies you know this is a 20 year old study don't use these statistics oh, wow. anymore and i think why that concerns me so much is like if we can't have integrity in that then we're not going to have integrity in our solutions either mm -hmm. um and going back to the idea that a life is of infinite value um i get the the desire to uh kind of say how big the problem is but at the same time you know i personally feel like we don't have to have big numbers for it to be a big problem mm -hmm. because each person is so valuable so um i just like to encourage people and what we've done is like be very conservative in our statistics and our estimates um the one that i like to rely on is uh, from the national center for missing and exploited children that said that uh, i believe the latest stat is one out of seven uh, runaway children were likely to be exploited for sex mm. and so when you think about how many runaway children i mean that's a lot um so but i just encourage people to be careful with statistics because it really matters you know if if we're not honest and if we don't have integrity about our statistics even though we mm -hmm. think we're drawing more awareness then when you get to the application side like we were at with law enforcement if they're going off bad statistics then they're going to misallocate their resources they might be missing big opportunities to uh you know put their resources toward things that would actually make an impact and so i've always just had like held that really close that mm -hmm. like we have to back up what we say we can't just say whatever we want we have yeah. to have integrity honesty and and that's always what we've led with yeah this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of nine lives and county a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by Dwayne dog the bounty hunter chapman nine lives and counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Now you did an analysis of a whole bunch of different ads and the ways that traffickers work. Um, how much how much attention really or how much uh, more trafficking activity is going on around the Super Bowl versus other other events? So you looked into that, right? Yeah, great question. So this is, yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, and people can uh, Google, uh, it was called looking at how public events affect sex trafficking activity, public events like the Super Bowl and NBC Universal actually covered that research with an article that everyone's welcome to go and read. But um, yeah, essentially what we did is 
we looked at the Super Bowl and compared it to 33 other events, large events like um, conferences, CES, um, Formula One, you know, big gatherings of people. Mm -hmm. Because it had always been said, um, in particular, there was a couple of politicians who said the Super Bowl is the number one human trafficking event in the country. And so, again, I remember reading that stat, quote unquote stat, mm. back in you know probably 2012 <clears throat> and thinking, wow, you know, that's amazing. Um, there must be some research to back that up. I'm so glad this this problem is getting more awareness because of this. But then when you dig into it, you realize there's no research at all. There's a couple anecdotal stories, but mm. there's no data to back this up. Mm. And so at that time um, that we came to do the study, we had gathered you know, hundreds of thousands of ads for a couple of years. And we thought, well, hey, our data is not perfect, you know, but I would argue that uh, the selling of sex online is a proxy for measuring human trafficking. Um, if that activity increases, it's likely that human trafficking also increases. And so we compared the Super Bowl to all these other events. Mm -hmm. And we found that the Super Bowl statistically uh, did not have the most statistically significant increase in activity. And in fact, there are many other events and um things that were happening through the U.S. at the time that had a much more statistically significant increase in activity. Hmm. And I emphasize statistically significant because before that study, a lot of groups had been looking at, okay, what is the total ads the weekend b before the Super hmm. Bowl and then the total ads during and the total ads after? And what people need to understand is what we care about is statistical significance, and that means is it actually significant, the increase, as compared to um, historical data, as compared to uh, data across the rest of the US, mm -hmm. um, can we actually say that there's a statistically significant increase? Because mm -hmm. totals really don't matter. We have to know if it's significant. And so uh, we found actually through that study a couple of events that nobody was talking about that actually had a huge increase in that activity. Um, just one of those <clears throat> is the oil boom in Minot, North Dakota. Um, that, that area has had a huge boom in population mm. and a huge spike in trafficking activity. Um, so if you, if you look up that study, you can see the graphs and it just mm. kind of blows you away because when we saw the statistically significant increase for the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. there was, but it was, it was like kind of a conservative increase. It wasn't off the charts. And then when you look at the Minot North Dakota graph, it, it is off the charts and mm. it is what we would have expected for the Super Bowl. And and so again, that's so important to me and to my team because armed with that actual <laughs> data, mm -hmm. then law enforcement can make data-driven decisions um, because they're putting huge resources towards this stuff. You know, And I even talked to detectives who said, yeah, you know, if we had these resources that were given during the Super Bowl, we could arrest you know the same amount of traffickers any weekend hmm. um, and so I, I just think data-driven decision-making is so mm -hmm. important to ensure that we're using these really limited resources in the best way Wow now how can people uh, access your study again uh, so if you google uh, how public events affect sex trafficking activity Super Bowl NBC Universal it should hmm. come up um, it's also uh, on our website it's around if you Google around you should be able to find it okay yeah. and what's your website our website is marinusanalytics.com that's m-a-r-i-n-u-s analytics.com and there's lots of articles on there um, keep you can keep updated on what we're up to we're also on Twitter at at Marinus AI Awesome. Now, how many government agencies and law enforcement groups do you work with now? We're in the hundreds now. Yeah. So a lot of different agencies and, and we're able to have a broad reach. So a lot of companies, 
um, will focus federally because, you know, that's the biggest bang for their buck. But our goal is is not only um, reach, but impact. And so we'll work with, you know, the smallest police agency up till, you know, some of those federal agencies that are probably mm-hmm. in your mind. Um, so, yeah, we work with pretty much every every law enforcement agency. Yeah. How many kinds of people are involved in producing something like traffic jam or face search? In other words, we might think in other, you know, I think immediately about coders who might immediately think about tech people, but how many kinds of different jobs or job functions are, mm. are represented there? It's an interesting question. So um, Traffic Jam was developed first as a research-grade software, so it was developed in research, um, and it was first deployed actually in 2013, before we even had a company. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and so that was the work of uh, me to design it, to talk to law enforcement, to get law enforcement input, um, and then working with some of the research programmers who were able to, at that time, we were able to leverage some of the existing software um, because, and that was a lot of learning that we had um, just growing the tool is uh, in in research, it's more that you're trying to build a prototype, you know, put something together as fast as possible from existing parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so that was, was a small group. Um, and, you know, we still have a small team now. We like to think that we're lean but mighty, and we've done a lot with just a very small amount of resources. We've not taken VC investment to date, although, you know, we're open to it, but we really wanted to maintain our social mission. So then when we spun it out of the university, we learned that, you know, a research-grade level prototype just does not scale. It was not built to scale up to hundreds of millions of ads. Hmm. Um, it was built to be built fast and to be usable and tested and all of that, but um, it just doesn't scale up. And so we had a number of uh, people on our technical team. We have a research scientist and a software architect who we brought on to actually scale that. But still a fairly fairly small team. Um, we're able to do, like I said, a lot with the resources that we have, and that's always been our goal. Um, and then as far as facial recognition, I mean, there's lots lots more mm. people who went into that on the Amazon Web Services side, um, but their team made it really easy for us to implement it. Wow, it's just amazing to think how many people are involved to get it from something that is a program that sits on your computer to where it's deployed and helping people and, and it's involved with law enforcement and all of that. Um, and then, you know, not even to think about the p- actual people who are being freed from um, sex trafficking and the people who are putting the, the perpetrators behind bars as well. It's a whole, yeah, whole <laughs> complex network of people. I mean, when you're talking about, uh, like you said, getting people in jail, I mean, there's the whole ecosystem of like, and I think people don't understand this typically, but many times victims will recidivate multiple times before they finally find um, you know stability in their rescue. So there's a lot of work done by victim services organizations, by law enforcement who partner with them. Um, and then there's the prosecutors and the analysts on their side putting mm-hmm. together the case. There's the jury. It's really important that people understand these cases more because we need juries to understand what's going on, understand the difference between human trafficking cases and other cases. And we're still working on that, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to just increase that awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's amazing just to think about all the kinds of different kinds of people who are using their giftedness, who are using the the job function that they have to participate in this, because it helps you one appreciate just how broad this thing really is, and it helps people understand that their work actually matters. Oh my gosh! And that their work matters yeah. not only to all these people and to the victims, but it matters to God too. 
Absolutely. This, this is really, really something that is in the heart of God that mm. you're getting to participate in. And then there's the whole entrepreneurial side oh my too, gosh, right? Yeah. <laughs> getting a startup. How did the startup come up? Um, yeah, so I was never one of those people who was thinking, you know, I'm going to start a company no matter what. I don't care what it is. I'm going to start a company. <laughs> um, that kind of came about through a number of different things. One was that, like I said, in 2013, we had the prototype out. Um, it was starting to help people. We were getting users and I started getting calls from law enforcement all over the place, just across the country saying, hey, I heard about you. Can you help me on my case? And so that's when we realized we need to really make this into a true product um, we need to make it into something that's easy to use um, and so right remind me of your question <laughs> how did you decide to start your startup and that's how did right that whole thing yeah happen? so so it was kind of this long journey but uh, yeah so we started getting these calls from law enforcement and realizing like we need to scale this up and we didn't know exactly what would be the way to do that so we started um, going into this program, which I highly recommend if you're a university researcher looking to commercialize uh, university-developed research products, the National Science Foundation i program, which stands for Innovation Core. And so we did that in January of 2014, and that was basically a boot camp of, if you're a researcher and you have never started a company and you have no idea what you're doing, let's throw you into the deep end and teach you how to, what they call, get out of the building. Essentially, in a, about a month and a half time period, we had to go out and interview 100 potential users and potential customers and get feedback on what their needs were, what their pain points are. Um, and that was really helpful because I think as a researcher you tend to have the problem that you care about and the things that you want to solve but those may or may not be real world problems or something mm -hmm. that's going to that a solution is really needed or is going to affect you know the work that law enforcement mm -hmm. does in our case so we did that um, and then yeah after that we learned a lot we decided to spin off into a company um, and and then in the years following we've gotten a number of National Science Foundation grant support to continue our work which is been awesome. Wow. And recently you were named a mother of invention by That's Toyota. Right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Toyota mother of invention. Yeah. So it's an awesome program. It's done in partnership with Women in the World, um, which is a, a group that does a bunch of events that highlight the work that women are doing across the world. So, I mean, there's everything from like uh, lady sea captains who rescue uh, refugees off the coast of Libya. There's mm. uh, there was a, an amazing woman who spoke at the New York event this year who uh, works in India and has a safe house for victims of human trafficking. Um, and so every year they select three or so mothers of invention, uh, women who have companies that are involved in uh, building technology solutions to social problems. So everything from clean water to public safety to human trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, they selected me at the end of last year uh, for their event um, to be honored this year. So I went to the Los Angeles salon um, and was honored by Toyota there, which was amazing and they gave us a grant to support our work and then also got a chance to speak at Lincoln Center in New York City in April, which was really amazing experience and just going to the event, uh, Women in the World event was amazing. Um, and so they really helped to highlight the work that we're doing, um, get the word out and it was an awesome experience. Wow. What are some of the challenges you would say that you face as a young woman in this, in this field? Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's been interesting because technology and law enforcement are both male-dominated fields. And um, 
I kind of just jumped in. So, but it's interesting to think about my evolution over that time because I remember um, walking into my first big presentation. This was probably in 2013, maybe, or 2012, at the LAPD Detective Symposium. And I was teaching a class, and I remember I walked in, like, in this full suit that probably made me look even younger than I was at the time, (laughs) which was, you know, 23 or so. And I remember feeling very out of place, and, you know, they were probably wondering, what are you doing here? And then I walk up and start teaching, and they're like, hmm. Um, But what I found for me is that, you know, standing out like that, being a young woman in this space, um, definitely gets people's attention, but then it's my opportunity to use that and to say, hey, um, well, like a lot of times it's raising the bar. I I think people need to have um, higher expectations for young women because we can do so much. And I I guess that that almost made it easier on me because once you have their attention, you say, okay, you put the bar down here. By the way, the bar needs to be way up here. Um, I'm going to exceed your expectations. Yeah. Um, and then another huge part of like, how do I actually impact the work that law enforcement's doing? How do I, you know, turn this from research that I really care about into something that has real impact? And a huge part of that is just bringing value. So I think this is true in so many industries. Um, what they really care about is, you know, they they might be new to technology or they might be kind of curious about what we're doing with AI. But what really gets people interested, especially law enforcement who we're trying to assist, is when they hear, oh, this brings me value. This is going to save me 50% of the time on investigations or like the case that we talked about, you know, turn a two-year investigation into a three-month investigation. Mm -hmm. That value really changes their work. And so... You know, once once they hear that, that's one of the most important things. And just make it clear, you know, this is how we're bringing value. Um, Every training that I do now, I pretty much say uh, I want to bring as much value as I can to you. And however much time we have, I want you to be able to take away this tool and this tool and this tool in your toolbox that you can use today to find Mm -hmm. victims. So it's really about making AI as accessible as possible. Wow. Who are the kinds of people that you train? Um, so I do a number of trainings. We we actually have a weekly online training every week because, again, we're a lean team. We work with law enforcement across the country and now internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found that a great way to scale it so that, you know, if they if law enforcement emails us tomorrow, then they can be on a training this week and, mm-hmm. and start using it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been super helpful. Um, and so typically, I mean, I do a lot of trainings for um, local police. But it could be, you know, FBI. It could be kind of, I've trained the full range. <laughs> so, yeah, it's wow. all around. Yeah. Well, you've done so much. And there are a lot of uh, pastors and ministry leaders who listen to the show. Are there ways that uh, churches and ministries could plug in and say they want to be a part of the solution? What can they do? Absolutely. So there's so many things you can do. Um, I like to think start local. You know, if you're looking to give to a local organization, first do your research. See what everyone's doing. You know, go out and meet some people. Figure out what's going on. If you want to give, you know, really vet those those organizations. You want to make sure your money is going towards something that you support. So do that. Um, I also like to say that I truly believe anybody, no matter their skills, can contribute to this problem. So. 
or if the solution you're... to this problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hopefully not the problem to the solution. Um, yeah. So if you're a CPA, mm-hmm. you could be a forensic accountant and donate your time to make sure that the trafficking victims get the money that they've been making this whole time instead of mm-hmm. their trafficker. If you're a writer, um, you could work with a nonprofit and help uh, work on their marketing, you know, help populate their blog. Um, you know, if you're in technology, obviously you can look on our website and see if we have any jobs posted. Um, and we're actually uh, currently hiring for a software engineer. So, uh, you know, check us out. But uh, there's just a ton of different solutions. Um, but probably if I if I said take away one thing, it would be do your research because uh, I think there's a lot of people reinventing the wheel because hmm. they don't do the full research and see what's already out there and who they can partner with. So do your research, find people to partner with and, and do it that way. Wow, that's amazing, amazing. You know, when we're been, we've been talking about this in in this 21st century digital age, um, it reminds me of something that when Jesus in uh, Luke was reading from Isaiah, from Isaiah 61, there's a part in there where God's special servant says, I've come to declare freedom to the prisoners and sight to the blind and to set mm. the captives free. And then in Revelation, there's this, uh, Revelation 18 has a judgment against those who sell the bodies of other people. And it's like, this is such a heartbeat of God um, that Absolutely. you get to, to manifest the character quality of God by bringing more justice into the world, by setting people free, and really common grace for the common good. Thank and you. It's just amazing to think about what, you know, you say a little group of uh, your little team can actually have a huge impact. Thank you. Yeah, we hope to. We hope to continue doing it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Emily. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. And thank you so much for joining us on the table today. We hope that you will join us once again next week here on the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.